Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. weird roller coaster ride for Quanin and it's coming to a weird screeching halt. Quanin kind of gave birth to a god, kind of maybe didn't, gets to fight the god, but next thing you know, we're going to see the likes of Quanin over in the pages of Hellion, where she's going to be facing off against the Goblin Queen. Not to mention, we had plant people and animal people all suddenly connected to Wolverine. This was a crazy week here on Krakoa, and I couldn't be more excited to talk about it with the best team. I'm Nico. I'm Kyle. I'm Regina. I'm Dylan. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survive the experience. Unlike Dr. Or Echo, unfortunately. Aww. Oh my god, are we starting on Brute Force? Are we starting on my new favorite thing in all of comics? Yes, Animal Brutality. It was an amazing nod to Grant Morrison's sort of groundbreaking, sort of homeward bound on steroids We 3. It was a really cool couple of pages in a really interesting title. But before we can even talk about the coolest shit going on in comics, today we are going to be looking at X-Force, Fallen Angels, and New Mutants number 6, X-Men number 5, and Weapons Plus number 4, number 1, number 1, number 4. It's a hard thing to talk about. However, I feel like... We would be jumping the gun if we talked about anything, but what I have to assume was like the greatest day of Regina's life. Regina, your woman is back. I know. <laughs> I am so excited. When I saw the promo, I was like, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, our internal chat went fucking nuts because like, I'm a Gene fan and I'm like, Gene's never alive, but Gene fans need to shut the fuck up and take a back seat when it comes to feeling shit on. Nobody has it as bad as Madeline fans. Half the time you find out the Madeline you were reading was a Gene all along. So Madeline fans have it worse than anybody. <laughs> She deserves so much more. I'm like, please, please, please. Let's get something really fabulous for her this time. <laughs> now, my theory on it is that if mutants are brought back, I would not be surprised if thanks to the resurgence of Limbo and Jean and whatnot, you know, Madeline could just be back as sort of like a matter of fact weirdness. But beyond that, I can't help but think if there's anybody Madeline Pryor wants to kill more than Scott Summers, it's got to be Mr. Sinister. And the X-Men are harboring Mr. Sinister and they made him like a fucking senator. And then they said experiment on some more people. If I were Madeline prior, I would be feeling like the mutant equivalent of a Nazi war criminal was just given access to an upper echelon cavalcade of genetic information and a carte blanche pass to do unto others as he has already wrought upon her. Madeline Pryor, I'm sorry, there's no way that Madeline Pryor isn't the good guy of whatever's <laughs> about to happen. <laughs> I would love to see her explode with righteous fury and just see it all laid out on the page. I just, ooh, I just want to see it. I agree. I, I'm there. I'm there. I'm there. Dylan, I know you stand yourself a good Madeline. I think mostly because she's not Jean. Yes. But this has to be exciting for you, too. <laughs> it is super exciting. I feel like since 
Maddie's going to be making her return in the Hellions, and we already knew that Mr. Sinister was going to be a character in this book. I feel like it's probably going to be the beginning of just like Apocalypse was in Excalibur. We're going to learn that Sinister probably has some plans of his own that don't agree with Krakoa, and he's probably going to just resurrect Maddie in some sort of weaponizing form. Oh boy. (laughs) So Kyle, I actually don't think I know your thoughts on Madeline Pryor. So let's see. I, uh, I really don't know where I stand with Madeline Pryor. I've really only seen her stuff from the Australian arc and Inferno. And I gotta say, I really enjoyed Inferno. I have absolutely no idea where things went with her after that uh, because like you said there's been multiple times where she's appeared so I'm interested to see where this could take from a guy who left off on Maddie and Inferno to a guy who just met her Jonah if I'm not mistaken where you are in our classic X's for podcast read has Madeline Pryor having just married Scott Summers so I have to imagine seeing her go from that picture there's that famous panel where it's Xavier getting a letter from Scott on his honeymoon and it's this amazing photo of Scott like hanging dong and he just kind of like looks over at Maddie and he's like check these out honk honk right so I I know we all really enjoyed that panel but how does it feel going from the honk honk panel to this knowledge that Maddie's coming back and she's wearing some sort of scary black lace well from hanging her Tata's out with the oops kind of face for Xavier to, you know, being this badass queen of the Goblin Force, I guess. I'm not sure. I literally don't know anything about Maddie as the Goblin Queen, so I am excited to see what that means. For her right now in her very first few appearances, she's not that defined yet. She's just a... And I don't mean this offensively, generic, but the way the writers, mainly Chris, treat her, that's not nice. You don't, that's not how you treat your characters. I agree. She's just like a, she's like a tough girl that can hang in, but she's also pretty and sensitive and she turns on Scott on a dime and it's not the character. It is the treatment of women because she actually does have a personality. The fact that she's an experienced pilot, that she's an intelligent woman who knows how to handle herself in crises. I really know what you mean. She's undervalued and gender in her earliest appearances. In her first appearances, I feel like she's interchangeable with Lee Forrester, Colleen Wing. They give Scott the exact same woman with just a different hairstyle, and that's not how you treat women. I love that they ran out of other different hairstyles and went back to red. So today we're going to be covering five books released from the X office. We're going to be taking a look at the much delayed X-Men number five by John Hickman and R.B. Silva, featuring what felt a lot like a side story, but a very central side story, I guess. We're going to be taking a detour into Weapon Plus World War IV by Benjamin Percy and George Ginty, which had a phenomenal fucking backup story of Weapon 2 by Ryan Caddy and David Baldion. Then we're going to be taking a look at the trifecta of sixes that came out this week, including X-Force number six, 
also by Benjamin Percy, but this one with art by Stephen Segovia, as well as Fallen Angels number six by Brian Hill and Simon Kurdansky. And then rounding things out with New Mutants number six by Ed Brisson and Flaviano. Now, before the episode began, I asked everybody if they would be interested in reading Weapons Plus, and there was general vague interest. After the book came out, and I saw the ways that it did inherently kind of connect to the central narrative of Weapons Plus, and what I can only assume is going to be the direction Benjamin Percy, current writer on X-Force, soon to be writer on Wolverine, is going to be leaning his character. If you're given Wolverine, and you're given Weapons Plus, it would be kind of crazy not to include it. So, I asked everybody to take these five books and put them in order, least favorite to favorite. And we've got a a pretty interesting working order. Now, Jonah and Kyle had X-Force as their least favorite book. Dylan and I had it as our second least favorite book. But Regina, you had it at number three. That brings it in as our least favorite book of the week. So to kick things off, let's talk about Beast being out of control again. What else is new? (laughs) Yeah, that's my big takeaway from this. We were talking about it on House of X and we were talking about about it on Twitter and people are saying, you know, Beast is out of character. Beast is out of character. And I'm like, no, no, no. This has been his character for so long now. He's no longer out of character when he behaves this way. I am at a point where I feel like Hank McCoy is in his state of Archangel. If Warren became Archangel and it ushered in this aggressive new phase, and then when Scott initially became Apoc, and then he eventually became, you know, like the Dark Phoenix, he went on his dark path. And Jean, you know, she kind of like invented the dark path. And I guess Iceman's dark path is that he's on Drag Race and not Dragula. So I feel like... Hank is in the darkest darkness of his darkest days. And I just, that's my big takeaway because I genuinely liked a lot of what I read. It was just this Hank shit is getting me down. For me, I actually, I mean, I would agree that this has been Hank's path for like the past, I don't know, decade and a half. Like Beast keeps doing things that are what Beast wants to do, like bringing back the O5, helping the Inhumans. And I, for the most part, usually think Beast is a pretty boring character. And the only time I ever really cared for Beast was during Age of Apocalypse. And then when Age of Apocalypse Dark Beast came to the regular 616, evil Beast is kind of fun. And I think actually gives the character depth. So seeing Beast, once again, doing what he wants to, and in his own kind of way, seeming like a mad scientist, like Sinister, I actually like this X-Force Beast. Speaking of Sinister, I was thinking when this book ended, I was like, Beast has basically turned into Sinister. I mean, he's he's been doing things that are not okay for a long, long time. But at this level, it's like... Okay, it's not surprising, but it's sad because I do want Beast to come to a point where he he finds redemption and he's just not there. And who knows if he's ever going to get back. I, I loved Fuzzy Blue, you know, trying so hard to be good Beast that was always worried about other people. And now it just feels like that dude is dead. <laughs> We've lost our avuncular blue friend and we've gotten this almost bitter man that just like he's just like a bitter old man now. Yeah. And and the last line where he says he's never wrong, I'm like, oh, the hubris. <laughs> Sheer fucking hubris. But Kyle, I know you read this and this was your least favorite book of the week. 
I don't know. I feel like it was disconnected from everything else that the book was covering over the past six issues. It just felt like this one mission didn't really fit in with everything else that we've seen so far. Yeah, you know, I found myself longing for the days of Wolverine and Quentin being cut in half. It was weird. That's a weird thing to miss. <laughs> Except if you're Dylan. If you're Dylan, you are always sad when they're not cutting Quentin Quire in half. <laughs> Correction, they cut his head off, and that was better than cutting him in half. <laughs> I understand. I'm sorry. So he's a big... Do you just read Riot at Xavier's on a loop? Is that just like your thing? Jonah, I gotta know, you had this book as your last place choice. I feel like you've kind of felt like X-Force is letting you down beginning to end here. And you started out not as critical as I was, but you've remained a pretty critical voice on X-Force. What is it about X-Force that isn't connecting with you? Especially for this issue, I will say this, I haven't read enough Beast to have any issues with the way that he's acting. The closest evil Beast that I've read is the evil Beast from Here Comes Tomorrow, which I enjoyed that Hank being a crazy mad scientist who got overtaken by Kick. I don't have the same problems with Beast that I'm hearing here, but I do have a very similar problem to what Kyle was saying. Every other book in the first run of the Dawn of X's first wave of six everybody's main villain, except for maybe X-Men, but X-Men keeps introducing like a different problem every single issue, has been wrapped up and basically finished. Those parts of the stories have been finished, but this story felt much more like it should have been X-Force number three, where it's them going on a mission for something and setting it up, as opposed to all the way at the end, and it's a removed narrative from the X-Force title. I don't mind X-Force being this much more gritty, realistic book that's supposed to be maybe for um, so more mature audiences. A little more mature. It's not that this demographic is changing, but there's not really much going on. I get it. This is the mutant CIA. This is the mutant task force meant to do the dirty things so that Krakoa is safe. But what are they doing? They're not really doing much. and They're not explaining much what exactly they're doing. And I'm just, I'm lost. You have this threat of the humans with the peacock tattoo. The X-Men are trying to escape from the NBC lineup. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, that's what it is. It's just, I'm confused as to what exactly X-Force is supposed to be doing. Give me something. And I think that bigger picture is going to be focused in a big way. You know, Benjamin Percy has three titles in a roundabout way. He's got this weapons plus one shot. He's writing X-Force. He's going to be writing Wolverine. This guy has got his fingers in a lot of titles right now. And I noticed a lot of crossover elements between his two books this week. I see the weapons plusification of the X title happening on Krakoa, and I'm really excited for it. As a matter of fact, our second least favorite, or I guess fourth most favorite, because I just thought weapons plus was so great. I had it at number three along with Jonah. Kyle and Regina had it as their number four title. And Dylan, you had good things to say about it, even though you had it in last place. I felt like you were the person that was maybe the most hesitant to read this, Dylan. I was hesitant to want to read it. When it comes to certain characters in any type of comic form, there's some that look really cool, but I don't want to take the time to learn or read about them. I know that's really weird to hear or say, but Man-Thing looks really cool, but I've never really cared to want to read anything that has to do with Man-Thing. 
So that's kind of why I didn't care to want to read Weapons Plus. But I love that I did. And the part that I love the most actually kind of didn't have anything to do with me a thing. But the end of the book had this team called Brute Force, which is just a bunch of animals and robot suits. And I just want them to have their own title now. And I want them to have action figures and I want them to have a movie and I want great actors to do voices of the animals. And this is just my life now. Well, so Brute Force is a tribute to a notion by Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison is a master of metamysticism. And like, if you want to get into Grant Morrison, I'm happy to Sherpa you through that. Bring a canary, bring some peyote, and bring a bedpan. But it can be a really exciting journey into Grant Morrison's work. If you recontextualize much of his work in terms of its other selves, it becomes transformational. To that end, brute force is a true manifestation of a mention that Grant Morrison made during Assault on Weapons Plus, which contextualized Weapon 2 as his creator-owned title, We Three, that is essentially this. And We Three has been optioned for a film, and there actually is a possibility that there are going to be two competing versions of this in comics at any given time now. And... I loved the look back at Marvel in a way that kind of elevated the story. I like making Man-Thing a part of this. Regina, I was so excited because like war comics are kind of my thing. And like, I loved that when I was like, hey, we got a war comic on the docket. You were like, I'm in. And I was like, yes, that's <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Did you have as much fun as I did with this? Oh, yes, actually. I'm not really one for like the war type stuff, but I do like a good yarn. And if you can give me a good yarn, then it's all good. So I was reading the story first. The art is so pretty, like just the colors. I really enjoyed that. I loved it when we see Man-Thing just slaughter this nurse <laughs> and her guts are pouring out. <laughs> oh, yes. when, when Man-Thing just slaughters this nurse. That was so beautiful. Third time Regina said something where she's like, I think I just described blood and guts as really pretty. I think I'm okay with it. And like, because in the in the Conan episode, you were like, it was gnarly. I loved it. And, and, and her other time was when she said that she fell in love with Mystique when she bashed a dude's brain in with a lamp. So she's... <laughs> and I stand by that. But, I mean, just the contrast between what the opening scenes are and then you see this very gory scene, you know, and then he goes out and does his thing with trying to save his brother and realizing I can't actually save my brother. And, you know, I have a brother and a sister. I love them to death. And, you know, what would you do if you understood this situation? There's not going to be an antidote for you. And your sibling is part of this thing and he's never going to be the same. It's a mercy killing. And you can kind of see where he's trying to get back to this person that he was. And then he finally comes to grips. I'm never going to be that person. And I can't be that person. I'm going to relieve my brother of his pain and suffering. And I'm going to go out into the world and do my own thing. So I really did enjoy this comic. I loved Brute Force. That was wonderful. I was so sad when Eep dies. <laughs> this poor dolphin. He's so cute. <laughs> Dr. Echo. I need a Pop Funko set immediately. <laughs> Jonah, you messaged me a fascinating question I didn't have an answer to. The guy who's running Brute Force, his name is Dr. Randall Pierce. And I asked Nico, is there any relation to Donald Pierce? 
the cyborg robo expert with government connections from the Hellfire Club. Because he does kind of look like him a bit. It's similar enough features that I would say there could be a relation there. And it was just something that I, I caught that I was like, oh, is that his brother? Is that a cousin? Is that someone? Because I know in comics, you have to be really specific with names. You have to be really careful to avoid instances like this if it is if they aren't related. I really think there is something to this. I was really mind blown when you showed it to me. My first thought was father, his uncle, someone. I was mind blown. I feel like with a last name like that, it has to be very intentional. And especially since this is set in the past, I feel like it has to be very intentional and is great because now we're just connecting even more X-Men history to Marvel history. It's going to be good for the movies. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that the name sounded a little familiar. I couldn't place what it was making me think of. So having Jonah bring that up really does cement it for me. So one thing that I really found interesting about the brute force section of Weapons Plus was that... It was the little, like, Easter eggs. Like, they're reading a Brute Force comic book from Marvel Comics, and it says, number one in a four-issue limited series and stuff like that, and it has all five of the members of Brute Force, and I love that. And then there was one other thing. I noticed that the Weapon Plus logo at the end of each of the stories is just the X-Men logo rotated by 45 degrees. Oh my god, that that's a great way. Oh my way. god, it is. That's a great way to... <laughs> Harken that visual. You're a genius, Kyle. I do like the little Easter eggs that Kyle mentioned, like the comic in Marvel Comics. It, it's a neat little thing to, I think, also maybe help some fans like myself who don't necessarily want to read a book about non X Men characters have fun reading other things. Fallen Angels number six. I personally had this as my least favorite. Regina, you were with me on that. Kyle and Dylan, you had it squarely in the middle, but Jonah, you had this as your number one. You want to talk about it? The reason why I put this as my number one is a mixture of the beautiful art culminating into this great moment. It's the Laura Quanin moment of Quanin saying, I will always be your friend. And it's that beautiful splash page of Quanin growing butterfly wings to attack Apoth. And I think this is what Fallen Angels was leading up to. And it kind of was a really nice send off slash payoff for me. I really enjoyed that this is the ending. I wish we got there a little faster or maybe told a different story intermittently. But ultimately, I really enjoyed seeing these characters grow for form connections, and just generally be badass. I'm glad Husk and Bling got a small chance to shine. I'm really happy for Laura until she's, you know, sent away. Um, <laughs> and I'm really happy that the character of Quanin kind of got a redemption and was been able to have been created as her own character. And I'm really glad you said that you wish it was maybe a little bit shorter because I had the same reaction. I had been hoping that this would ultimately, when I looked back, I feel like it would have read best as a hundred page graphic novel. I think that would have 
been maybe a smoother experience. I also can't help but see how Cable and Laura were ultimately stand-ins for Scott and Jean. I feel that Laura played the role of Scott, the dutiful one who was trying to like keep them on the narrow path and Cable was playing the role of the Jean, the person who was running off and doing her own thing and no one was ever calling her out on it. And I just feel as though we could have gotten here a little bit faster for as much as I enjoyed the journey. I completely agree with the graphic novel part. Like, I feel like this would have read better and probably I feel like would have been even better as a redemption for Quanin as just a hundred page graphic novel. I like Jonah mentioned, I'm happy that Bling and Husk got to shine for a millisecond. I feel like the most shining that they did in these two issues that they were in was just being on the cover of issue six because they did not do a damn thing in issue five or issue six. But I am happy that Quanin got a story to separate her from Betsy. And I, I hate to say it, but I'm happy this is over. It started out amazingly well done and the art and everything, but I kind of feel like the story and even the art kind of lacked in the last three issues. Yeah, those last couple of issues were maybe the most marker-heavy thing. I have to agree with everybody else that I kind of wish that it had ended a little sooner. I, I don't know. I mean, it just felt like most of the characters were there to fill pages than to actually contribute to the story. And it really was a story about growth for Quanin and Laura only. My least favorite book. It just didn't do it for me. I did notice that this is the first time I think I've personally seen Quanon manifest a shield which when you look at Betsy Betsy's also manifesting a shield more often than she's using her sword or her knife oh that's a great point I love that um, so I thought that was an interesting choice. Has she ever manifested a shield before? Does anybody else know? No, but that's going to be a really great research point. It, there's not enough Quanin that it can take that long. I think she's appeared in 40 total issues. And m most, if not all, are up on Marvel Unlimited at this point. I should point out that her shield is, just like her sword, distinct from Betsy's. They have a more Japanese style than the British European style that Betsy used. Had never seen her do it before and Betsy started out with this thing and even though they have their own individual ways of manifesting it I thought that was interesting that still shows that they still have that they still have a link and I don't know if they'll ever really escape that yeah I mean I think they really are permanently bonded our top two books Actually, there was almost no way to be able to tell which one came in first and second other than X-Men 5 was three people's favorites and New Mutants 6 was only one person's favorite, but New Mutants 6 received nothing lower than a second place position, where X-Men 5 received as low as a fourth place position. So I want to start things off with New Mutants. Guys, what was it about New Mutants that we all loved so much this issue? Was it Tabby's badassery? Was it the somehow kind of reconciling so much buildup like there was something so great about new mutants for me new mutants is always about the transitionary characters that are stuck with this idea that new is a moniker that can define who they are i just loved seeing everybody forced to confront the fact that they're all lost 
If you don't love Tabitha Smith, we cannot be friends. Tabitha Smith is the greatest character I have read in so long, and she has jumped to my number three ex-lady. I cannot describe how much I love Tabby and how amazing she is in this title, and she's literally the reason why it's so high. Plus, I could see my beacon, my angel, who now goes by Tempest, which is a, such a fun new name. Tabitha Smith is the greatest character ever written. That's not true, but I'm standing by it, and that's the hill I will die on. She is my everything. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you don't want to boom, boom, boom and want her in your room, then we can't spend the night together. Not now, not ever. Oh my god, Vinga boys. I know, right? I'm one of those gays. <laughs> I liked New Mutants exactly for that fact. I'm a huge 90s X-Force fan, so anybody that was a part of the X-Force in the 90s will always be one of my favorites, and Tabby is a favorite of mine too. She's grown over the years that she's been in comics, but I feel like a lot of writers have always been able to just get the sense of character that she is. She's fun and she's quirky, but she can be, like you said, the leader that she needs to be when she needs to be. And in this issue and two issues ago, when we first got this story with Tabby and Armor and Beacon Angel, she realized that she was going to have to be the one to basically save the day for these kids because in a sense she's the elder here and she needed to fix things because in that previous issue she kind of just ignored them and let them go on and then she realized crap I probably should have been there to chaperone or something like that and I just feel like this book is also a good introduction to people who may not have read X-Men Extinction to know a little bit more about Maximi and Manon and I think they could in the very near future be, again, a another problem or really good villain for the X-Men or even the New Mutants. I felt like Maxime and Manon have done a lot of learning in this story. Uh, they they really just want to help everybody, but they don't realize the ramification of their powers. So having them be put into this position where they can help, and then having somebody explain how it might not be the best solution, I thought was really well done. About this issue because it was it was just so poignant with the twins learning you know there's different ways to do things and how they normally do them and glob kind of like hey you guys that's not okay let's you know let's do this and then losing beak's parents and then when the twins decided to heal him essentially and then armor had to decide is that okay or is it not okay and what do you do when someone loses you know someone that you know their parent that they love and who was trying to you know be part of their lives and is it gentler to let them keep the illusion so overall i really loved the way that the story was executed i felt connected with all of the characters but it was terribly terribly sad and terribly terribly wonderful for lack of a better word terribly sad and terribly wonderful really captures the vibe that i feel like new mutants has been running for the last six issues from the sixes to the five that came in number one. I know I'm not supposed to be like so obsessively captivated by one title blindly, but I do feel like I've reached a point where every time an issue of X-Men comes out, I can no longer be taken seriously on my opinion. I feel like I have just 
I just, I was holding the issue and I'm thinking about it and I'm looking at it and I'm like, I can tell this was an issue that they figured out how they could slot in to give more time to the ongoing narrative. And that's why this got like previewed with a different artist and they started saying what the plot was out of nowhere. Clearly, this was a catch up move so that they didn't miss two shipping months. And I thought there was more personality in this one fucking issue of X-Men than in like whole years. This is the kind of issue that could have pulled me in in the first place. I would love to know why Regina, you're also right, and Kyle, why you're right, and Dylan, why you're mostly right, and Jonah, no one wants to know why you're not right. So (laughs) guys, talk to me about X-Men number five. I'm going to say that it was hard for me to choose either New Mutants or X-Men as number ones, and I just went with New Mutants just just because I loved Tabby just as much as Jonah. But I want to say that, for me, this issue was amazing because of an information page. I love Hickman's writing with these information pages because this issue, even though we saw him in, I think, House of X or Powers of X6, I'm not sure. This issue was basically the return of Sync, and Sync was originally a member of Generation X, and he died a very long time ago, and unlike most other X-Men, had never returned, except for once during a storyline called Necrotia, and I think he had one panel, and that was it. So we haven't seen really seen Sync for years, and he's a huge fan favorite, and the information page where they talked about Sink being resurrected and his problems of dealing with the fact that he's been resurrected and how he was just keeping his feelings and thoughts to himself and then how the resurrection protocols were changed a little bit so they resurrected another Generation X member Skin who's been dead for quite some time too so him and Skin could be companion resurrected buddies and it was just amazing and I'm happy Sink's back and that information page was the highlight of the book for me. It was such a level of depth and nuance that I really needed to see given to the psychological conditioning that these X-Men are going to have to undergo to begin to survive consistent, remembered reincarnation, often by forcible termination. It was the kind of dedication to consistency of pathos in storytelling that sets Hickman apart from just any other writer. For them to pick a character like Sink to be the one to go into that depth, it's very telling of, I feel like, of Hickman being a Generation X fan because of all characters to have that depth and that emotion and everything, I feel like even though Sink was in comics for just a short time, he is that person to tell that great aspect of not necessarily being just, okay, I got resurrected, let's move on. Okay, I'm a huge Sink Pit fan also. The whole Sink, Monet, Jubilee, kind of semi-love triangle back in the day was one of the reasons I love comics. I love the soapiness of it. But to see him coming back and then revealing that, you know, they did promote skin so that he could have a companion, and then throw him into the vault where time passes so differently. <laughs> At this point, they've been there for three months, and it's 500 years or so inside the vault. That's got to be a mindfuck. Like, okay. Okay, so he's already coming to terms with being here in the present. Now we're going to throw him into this vault, and he's going to be there for God knows how long. So if he does come back out of the vault, 
how is that going to change him as a character? So he's already suffering, trying to adjust to the present. And now he's going to have this whole, I mean, can you imagine being alive for 500 years and all of the changes in addition to whatever's going on actually inside of the vault? So I thought that was something that was really interesting that they're doing with him. I loved that Laura reclaimed her title as Wolverine and that Logan- And supportive Logan. Yes. Oh, great. Oh my God. Oh my God. I was like immediately like Jonah- Jojo, it's us. I was so excited. Oh, it was so good. Sorry. Loved that moment. Best moment ever. No, I, I agree. That was kind of my reaction to like, yes. And I, I think it's interesting that, you know, Cyclops has always felt the weight of what he does. Even when people didn't agree with him and he felt that he was right, he's always been steadfast in when he really believes in something, he goes for it and he does what he needs to do to get the job done. And so at the end of, you know, we, we see the opening pages and then the closing pages kind of mirroring the, themselves. And he's saying, what have I done? What was I thinking, you know? Um, so I'm interested to see the next layer of the story and what happens in the future. I thought this was a great book. And like Dylan, I, it was hard for me to decide which one was my number one, this one or New Mutants, because they were both such fantastic storytelling. This week, Nico had told me that I wasn't allowed to read these books until I got far enough into New X-Men so that I wouldn't have anything spoiled for me. So... Assault on Weapons Plus from New X-Men 142 to 145. Once I got through that and seeing the link between the vault and the world, it really was a really cool callback having that connection and having experienced that storyline so recently. Now, you know, Jonah, I was so excited for you to get to experience the children of the vault. And there was all this gorgeous R.B. Silva art. And then you said this was your second least favorite book. And I just wasn't sure how to fix it. My problem with X-Men right now is that Hickman has a lot of ideas floating around. And I, I was really happy that the story was talking about the children of the vault. And that was something that was brought up in X-Men number one with Serafina. However, there has been no other connection to the Old Bitter Lady Brigade, the humans for the remnants of the Master Mold scientists. Where is all of that story? I'm not unhappy with what I got from this book because I do think it's a really good story and everything was beautiful and I'm excited to see what comes out of it. But there have been so many ideas in X-Men that I'm just waiting for them to catch up to what they already laid in front of them. That's what my problem was, is that there's so much going on and it seems like more or uh, threatening. Maybe it's because I don't fully understand the Children of the Vault, but it still seems like there are a lot of pressing matters within the X-Men title that they haven't addressed for a very long time, and that just concerns me. I think that's all really reasonable. This week in comics made me super excited because the MVP of this week is Hisako or Armor because she got to be in two books, and she was pretty amazing in both of them. She was. It's great seeing her her get so much page time she deserves it i think any representation is important and i think especially when it's a well thought well researched character that has ties to her cultural heritage and we've seen that connection explored it's not just a celebration of the diversity that the x-men is proud to tout but it's a method of inviting new people to the x-men this era of x-men is supposed to be about inclusion welcoming and acceptance everybody's 
welcome on Krakoa. So let's make sure everybody's welcome to read in Krakoa. It's very important that we continue to shatter that paradigm and not hyper-rely on the same five characters. Don't get me wrong. I perhaps wish that it wasn't all on Hisako. I've begun to feel like Hisako is accepting this sort of role of all of the Asian representation in mainstream perception of the X-Men, but I see them making the efforts with Karma and with Quanin to fix that. And I just feel like this is a great time to look forward to how far the X-Men are going to keep evolving. Hey everybody, welcome back to another X's for Podcast game show segment. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about the history of the Weapons Plus program. Now, Weapon X, in its conception, was always an idea that was inserted as a retcon. Essentially, it was a program that was created to explain a lot of Wolverine's backstory. To that end, as the Weapons Plus program has evolved and progressed under pens like Barry Windsor Smith and Grant Morrison, it's seen increasing numbers of retcons, sending the concept further and further back into the Marvel Universe. As a matter of fact, my first question is about Weapon Zero. How far back in Marvel's publishing history do you think they've inserted the Weapons Plus program? When did Captain America come out? 1941. So 1941. 1941. <laughs> 1941. <laughs> Dylan, you have any thoughts? I'm going to say that I love The Price is Right, so I'm just going to say 1942. <laughs> One dollar! Fittingly, with our coverage of Marvel's 80th anniversary celebration, they've inserted the Weapons Plus program as far back as Marvel Comics number one, with a character named John Steele representing the first weapons program character introduced in the pages of a Marvel comic. For our Weapon 1 question, we're going to take a look at some of the characters that indirectly experience a connection to the Weapons Plus program. Captain America was ultimately revealed to be the result of Weapons 1, but due to that piece of canon, a young hero popular in the Marvel Universe is also powered thanks to the Weapons Plus program. Is it X-23? Miss Marvel? <laughs> <laughs> Regina, what's your guess? Uh, Wolverine. <laughs> it's actually going to be Young Avenger Patriot, who gained his superhuman abilities from a blood transfusion from his grandfather, Isaiah Bradley, an earlier test subject revealed to be an earlier Captain America in a move that was designed to mirror the sacrifice of so many black soldiers that came before in the pages of Captain America. Now, for as wild as we went for Brute Force Weapon 2 in this episode, this wasn't their first appearance. They'd been name-dropped in a one-shot released in 2019. But beyond that, Marvel had made an effort to connect to Weapon 2, a connection to the Grant Morrison Wii 3 concept, previously, using some not-quite-human superheroes prior to this. Anyone who want to take a guess at any of the not-quite-human superheroes that appeared in the pages of this Marvel Comics Weapon 2 crossover event oh is this animan or whatever like like rocket <laughs> wait rocket raccoon you know when you're right you're right regina you got that right 
so quickly. Rocket Raccoon is in fact one of the characters included in this crossover. The Weapon 2 crossover consisted of Rocket Raccoon, Squirrel Girl, Beast, and Howard the Duck. The issues in question included Howard the Duck and the unbeatable Squirrel Girl, and evidently this was very in line with the parody work that these characters are known for, including spins on things like Snicked being shown as Snucked. <laughs> Thanks. I hate this. Wait, and And Beast? Yes, absolutely Beast. As a matter of fact, you never know who's going to turn up in the pages of a Weapons Plus comic. Like this next character, who is a member of the Weapons 3 program. He was also a member of the Brotherhood, Pete Wisdom Nemesis Black Air, a Deadpool and Phantom X Nemesis, ran afoul of the Captain Britain Corps, resulting in his flaying, and even found his genetic code repurposed to create mutant hunting bullets on Genosha. Considering how well connected this character is, I'm not sure how you're not all just shouting out his name. Eunice. No idea. Weird, come on, how don't you all know the skinless man? You know, the skinless man! You know him! He's skinless! Skin me, skin me as fast as you can. I'll never have skin on the skinless man. <laughs> that was horrifying. So, <laughs> well, so is the name Skinless Man. I hate this well, too. I hate this too. We get Weapon 4 being Man-Thing, which of course I appreciate. However, what's fascinating is the character who Weapon 5 ultimately would be revealed to be far precedes almost anything we know to be a part of the Weapons Plus program. The hint I'll give to the identity of this character is a recent Tom Hardy film ultimately resulted in this character's shelving. Venom? Which Venom? Venom? <laughs> no, I don't know. You're actually really close. It's Agent Venom, Flash Thompson, who, in his super awesome tactical suit, would not only serve alongside Spider-Man, but would join Rick Remender's Secret Avengers. Wait, wasn't he also a Guardian of the Galaxy? He, in fact, did serve some time as a Guardian of the Galaxy. It's unbelievable that we've hit the Young Avengers, the Guardians of the Galaxy. In fact, there's just about nowhere in the Marvel Universe, whether it's the live-action or comic version, that the Weapons Plus program doesn't touch. As a matter of fact, the product of the Weapons 6 program is one of the most recognizable characters, whether it's Marvel television and animation, live-action, or the comics that I can think of from the last 10 years. And if you need a hint, well, sweet Christmas. Luke Cage? It's in fact Luke Cage, the doctor that ultimately performed the experiments that resulted in Luke Cage's bulletproof skin was funded by the Weapons Plus program as part of the Weapon 6 initiative. Huh. Weapon 7 represents an interesting first for the series where it was a term repurposed by a different writer. While I don't expect most readers to be familiar with the Marvel UK super soldiers, who are most well known in the US for being a part of the Revolutionary War miniseries, there's a Wolverine villain who's probably a little bit better known for being a member of the Weapon 7 program. Is it Omega Red? Cyber? Wow, absolutely no, that gets a total holy shit, it's Cyber. <laughs> I loved Cyber back in the day. <laughs> 
Not too much is known about Weapon 8 other than it featured quote-unquote psychopaths and criminals. That's not particularly forward-thinking. But there's almost too much known about Weapon 9. If you ask the creator, Rob Liefeld, Weapon 9 was originally going to be Deadpool. However, later on, a different character, who wasn't originally known to be a mutant, but later was retconned to be, known for their appearances in comic, film, and television, was later revealed to be Weapon 9. Anybody have any... I actually know who this is because I was interested in their name and that Marvel did it. Is it Typhoid Mary? It is 100% my precious Typhoid Mary. Huh. Didn't know that she was connected to all this. Daredevil and the X-Men actually have a number of common threads. A lot of it is likely due to the shared concepts created by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller, which would go on to define both series. For instance, many people don't realize that Lady Deathstrike first appeared pre-cybernetics in the pages of Daredevil. Once believed to be all there was, Weapon X is best known for giving us Wolverine, Deadpool, Sabretooth, X-23, among countless other popular characters. But what might not be as well known is Weapon 11, though there is something notably ridiculous about Weapon 11, and it lies exclusively in the name. Does anyone know what Weapon 11 is better known as in Marvel Comics? Weapon 10. Yes, actually, in a ridiculous twist of fate, Weapon X, Garrison Kane, a creation of early X-Force, in X-Force number 2, I believe, is ultimately revealed to be Weapon 11. So Weapon 10 is Weapon 11 is Weapon 10 is Weapon 11 is Weapon 10. Okay. Now, you would only be familiar with Weapon 12, the Huntsman, Zona Cluster 6, if you're familiar with New X-Men. However, these days, most fans are familiar with Phantom X, or one of his many iterations. However, there's a series of popular characters that many people might not realize are actually Weapon 14. I do know the answer. I know, but I don't want to say it. <laughs> I have no idea. You do know, Dylan. You have to know. Oh, as I'm sure is what just occurred to Dylan, Weapon 14 is sure enough, X-Men comic book favorites, the Stepford Cuckoos. Weapons 15 and 16 are a little bit more ridiculous, at least their names are. They are Automaton and All God. Now, on top of those, there are a few that are maybe a little ridiculous as well. There's one known as the American Kaiju Weapon, which was created from Dr. Connor's Lizard Formula, Pim Particles, Beast's MGH, and Hulk Gamma Radiation. Big-time fan Rick Remender would add to the canon as well in the pages of his Captain America with a somewhat more abstract villain known as Dr. Mindbubble, who would go on to be known as Weapon Minus. Jason Aaron Aaron would also try to connect the Weapon Plus program to some of his favorite canon in the Marvel Universe by creating the codename designation Weapon Infinity for a well-known Marvel property that he would use time and time again in the pages of his Wolverine and X-Men. I have no idea. It's actually Deathlock. He's better known as that sort of scary-faced cyborg guy. He's an interesting character, has been seen with Cable, Wolverine over the years, and also well-known in his own regard, though I do frequently think he's better known for looking interesting, kind of like Moon Knight or Man-Thing, to harken back to what Dylan said earlier. I think the point that we're trying to make with this episode is that this Weapons Plus special, even if it wasn't the most key pivotal moment of the entire Marvel Universe this month, 
They are making a strong bid to position the Weapons Plus program as something in the pages of every Marvel comic, starting with the Marvel 80th Anniversary Initiative, placing Weapons Plus in the pages of Marvel Comics number one. I'll be interested to see what role it plays in the future of Marvel Comics with incoming. We covered some interesting books that had some pretty interesting history and lore tied into them. I think probably the most fascinating, for me at least, is the Weapons Plus book because the Weapons Plus program is so fascinating. But I am really, 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 really excited to see what the Children of the Vault actually means. and what, what it, I have no idea what it is, but it is fascinating. Kyle, what's being released next week? So, this week we have a lot of stuff being released. First of all, we have Marauders number 7, X-Men Fantastic Four number 1 of 4, of which there are four covers, and Savage Avengers number 0, which will have two covers. In addition, we have four posters that are being released. The Alex Ross cover of Wolverine 1, as well as the standard cover of Wolverine 1. We have the giant size X-Men Jean Grey and Emma Frost number one poster and the X-Men Fantastic Four number one poster. And then finally, we have one omnibus, the X-Men versus Apocalypse the 12. But until next time, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. Dylan, where can everybody find you? Everybody can find me on Facebook at my X-Men Facebook group called House of X, which Regina helps me moderate. Or you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Regina, where can everyone find you? Maybe on Twitter at the Red Queen underscore G or Instagram at the Red Queen underscore on underscore IG. And Jonah, where can everybody find you? Actually, I'm the real Wolverine. Thank you. Or I'm actually not. I wish. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network with any number of these amazing people on any number of amazing shows like HTML, which I do with my husband Kevo, as well as all the feeds of this show. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram over at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N or my comic work over at KidRiotComics.com. That's K-I-D-R-I-O-T-C-O-M-I-C-S.com. You can check us out on our web portals at X's for Podcast or we are Krakoa.com. And until next time, when we're covering a bunch of the stuff that Kyle named, which was a bunch of stuff. We'll see you. See ya. Bye. Bye. Goodbye.